focus this morning will be on verses 15 and 16, but I'm going to read beginning at verse 14 down through the end of the chapter, verse 21. There are those translations you'll see that 15, uh, actually beginning in the second part of 14, his quote to Peter, Cephas, uh, goes all the way down through 21. There are others who believe that it ends at 14, some ending at 16, <laughs> but I'm going to read the whole thing because it is a passage that I believe is, um, it stays together in, in Paul. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you did not think that the narrative part of Paul's letter to the Galatians is over, <laughs> after reading that section, you probably do now. It is with fear and trepidation that I preach to you this morning, because one, this is very technical language. And there are those in the church who think, you know, you need to just preach Christ and his love and how God helps us and guides us and stick to love. Don't get to all the technical detail. But as we heard this morning in Sunday school, it is incumbent upon us to understand not only what we believe, but why we believe. But also, I, there is some trepidation because this passage, and particularly verse 16, and then on into chapter 3, has been under revision by some in the church. I won't go into all the details because I don't think that's my job here, but yet to understand that it has caused me, as I think it has, should cause the church, to look again at what is Paul saying? What does, for example, Paul mean by works of the law? And in fact, Paul introduces for the first time for us in this 
section of Galatians, these technical terms, these that one speaker that I heard as a, as a baby Christian said, you know, don't ever use those 25 cent words like justification and sanctification because nobody will understand. But Paul uses them and we need to understand them. But here for the first time, he uses that word justification. He uses the word law and works of the law. He uses for the first time really faith and righteousness. He uses the terms uh, that we have to understand and know. And so it is our job to look at them, to search out what is he speaking of here. And there is, in this passage, two things that are, are, are great overarching themes in Pauline writing, Pauline uh, letters. He talks on the one hand about justification, that question that is asked by most people, how can I be right with God? But he also speaks about that great uh, mystery, that union with Christ. That, what does it mean when Paul says, Christ lives in me? And so he has them here in this short paragraph, bringing them to light in his explanation, in his writing to the Galatians in their wanting to follow these antagonizers, those who would draw them away, as we have talked about, from the truth of the gospel. And so we approach this from the context of Paul's speaking to Peter. He says that he spoke to Peter in the presence of all. So he's not just, even if he, these are quotes um, directly or Paul paraphrasing, this is the conversation that I had with Peter. Others are listening. Others are gathered around listening to Paul speak of these things. And yes, it is in the context of table fellowship, of a meal. And, and what does it mean uh, for the relationship between the Jew, the Jewish Christians, that is, and the Gentile, the Gentile Christians, those in both races who have come to faith in Christ. And yet I believe there's something deeper here as Paul begins to move along. And in fact, this is a transition to the, the, the more central argument of his letter. And I believe that, that verses 15 and 16 are a bookend to that central argument that goes all the way through the middle of chapter 5. In chapter 2, verse 16, he writes... By works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And in verse 4 of chapter 5, he writes, You who have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. There is a continuity here. There is a thread here that he is speaking of, and yet it is, has many parts and facets to us that we need to understand. And so Paul speaks, and I believe that he is here still speaking to Peter in verse 15 because he uses the word we. And he says, we are Jews by nature. Well, that's not the Gentiles, of course, but he says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among 
the Gentiles. This is no racial epithet, and he's not claiming that Jews are not sinners and Gentiles are sinners, but it is and was at that time the common Jewish view that they were separate, that they were of a different race, of God's chosen people. Jews by birth, he means. Jews by nature of their ancestry. It's the condition of their ancestry that they were God's covenant people. And we know how Paul speaks of the Gentiles. We heard this even in our Thursday night class from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, tells what the Gentiles were like. He says, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You're outside of it. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You were having no hope and without God in the world. Those four things characterizing what a pagan, what a heathen was like in the first century and what they are still like today. They are without hope. They are without God in the world. And so Paul says to, to Peter, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. But I believe, as one commentator says, that Paul is baiting the trap here. Because what would be the natural response of a Jew hearing Paul say this? You are of the chosen race. You are of God's covenant people, not like sinners among the Gentiles. And what would be their next response? Well, traditionally, they would say, Jews would then seem, as we believe, to have an inherent right to justification. God chose us, and we have that right as Jews to be chosen, that we are right with God. And yet Paul is setting them up for a very different answer. Yes, the Gentiles were sinners, both in reality and ritually compared to the Jews. They were not obedient to the law. But in the next phrase, verse 16, the New American Standard has nevertheless, but I believe it could be translated better, but knowing that a man, but knowing that a man is not justified by faith, by works of the law. He's giving them a different answer than they expected. You expect him to say, Jews, by their ancestry, by their heritage, they have right of justification. But Paul says, but, but you know, Peter, you know that no man is justified by works of the law. Now he uses that phrase, works of the law, three times in three clauses. And I look at them this way. One is General Theology 101. One is his main clause, the central clause that he wants to make in verse 16, that point. And then he has a universal clause, a universal theology at the end. Because he says to Peter, you know that a man is not justified by works of the law through faith in, but through faith in Christ Jesus. 
No one here, as far as I can tell, in learning about these antagonizers, these ones who have come to Antioch and then come in among, uh, later among the Galatians, is questioning this thing, this idea. No one's questioning that there, whether there is a need for faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. I, I don't hear that here. But I don't believe that that is what Paul is getting at in this passage. The dispute is, and I believe it's a dispute that is now being re-brought to the church by some, and what's called the new perspective on Paul is this. Do works of the law need to be added to faith in Christ for justification? Do they need it to be added to what we understand as faith in Christ? Faith alone, as the Reformers called it, sole fide, faith alone. Negatively, Paul answers that question, no one, he says, can be justified in terms of the law and meeting its demands. No one. And to me, that's Theology 101, his first phrase. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. They are opposed to one another. They can't be added to one another. Jews, he says, when he says to Paul, you're a Jew and you're not a sinner among the Gentiles, but what you have to understand, Peter, and you know this, and people listening to him know this. We're not saying, can the Gentiles have fellowship with the Jewish Christians? That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying is, you know, Peter, that you and all Jews are sinners. You are dead in trespasses and sins. And you have joined because you were already there, but you have to get it in your mind. You have joined the ordinary human status. Man is a sinner. And obedience to covenant regulations cannot put a man right with God, but faith in Christ can. And then he appeals personally to Peter when he says, even we, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. I pause there because I, I, I spent three days in very close contact with ten teenagers, none of which I'm related to. And I got a chance to listen to how they talk and interact with one another, and it was somewhat of a cross-cultural experience for me. And I don't know if Paul said this to Peter and used the phrase that one of my students kept using for three days straight, but I, he may have stuck his finger in his chest and said, you know, homeboy, <laughs> you know this because it has been your experience as well as mine. 
You met Christ personally. You walked with him. You ate with him. You, you, you held him. You touched him. You saw him. And he came to me at a different time. But you know that your experience is that you have believed in Christ for salvation. And you did not perform the works of the law in order to be saved. He highlights that even we. Peter knew this. And the words that he uses there, and we don't really have time to flesh all of this out. It's one of those other things that has come under at least pointing us to revision. Works of the law on the one hand, but also faith in Christ. The, the language is faith into Christ. And some have taken that to be and again, I've, I've, I've said that I've always struggled with the word of in Greek. It is, is it the faith of Christ or is it faith in Christ? And some have taken it as the faithfulness of Christ. That we are saved, that, that it is the faithfulness of Christ, faithful to the covenant, faithful to the law, faithful to God the Father. And, and certainly Christ was. Christ was perfect. Christ did those things that pleased the Father at all times. That he was sufficient for those things. And he was. But, but the focus of Paul's passage here is on man. It's on them as people. Paul and Peter and all listening to them and all who read Paul in this context. And this idea of faith into Christ. Some have called Christ faith to help us understand that it is, our, our, it is directional. The, the words seem to lead us in the direction of a connection into believing on Christ. Faith directed toward Christ. Not just believing certain things about Christ. He's not saying we believe that certain things are true. But he is also saying, yes, we believe these things to be true, but we trust Christ. The object of our faith is Christ. We trust him and we commit our lives to Christ. That's the idea of Christ faith committing oneself to Christ rather than intellectually accepting a message about Christ. But there are those who would kind of call a time out on me at this point and say, but what do you mean or what do you think Paul means by works of the law? Well, there can be, I think, two ways to take this phrase. One is subjective, the works prescribed by the law. But the other is objective, it is works done in obedience to the law. So are we talking about those things that the law prescribes, or are we talking about doing? Are we talking about the performing or the, the work done in obedience to the law? Now, the new perspectives on Paul, and this is um, the writings that I have read, uh, begin, uh, at least for me, in my search with Albert Schweitzer in the 1930s. 
and really came to light in 1977 by a man by the name of E.P. Sanders, and more recently by a man by the name of N.T. Wright in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And yet, as my understanding, that Wright in uh, what is the modern uh, vernacular, uh, as we saw in our last political election, uh, he has began, gone to walk back on some of the statements that he wrote uh, earlier. But if I could summarize it, it says that the works of the law function as boundary markers for Jews, as God's true people, as distinct from Gentiles. In other words, they say, when we look at this passage, that these, these people who would want to do the works of the law, perform the law rituals, in order to make themselves right with God, we think of them as legalists. But they would say, no, they are nomists. Nomos being the Greek word for law. And they would be those that insisted that faith in Christ had to be combined with law obedience in order to secure ultimate salvation. Now the reform view, which we take and I think we automatically think of the reformers, Luther and Calvin in the 1500s, looked at these as works and saw them as sinners cannot perform the law adequately in order to be justified, in order to be right before God. And so there are those who say the Reformers, in a sense, got it wrong. On the one hand, I can say that in my search, the writings of Ambrosiaster and Chrysostom in the early centuries after Christ wrote things that looked like have, could have come from the pen of Luther or Calvin, and that 500 years even of Luther and Calvin, to say that they are wrong is, is kind of a knee-knocking, shaking experience for me. But I want to say that again, from our Sunday school class this morning, to be pushed into this, to search and to pray and to seek God in these things has been beneficial for me to understand what I believe and why. And when I read the scripture, I see from Romans 7 that Paul does say, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But what is the issue? The issue is why this doing of the law cannot justify. That is what Paul is saying. No man can be justified by doing the law. What's wrong with the law then if it's holy and right and good? And the answer, in the words of Philip Ryken, the problem with the law is our lawlessness. It's not with the law, it's with the sinner. Sinners cannot keep the law. And I believe 
at least in my first attempt to answer those who would redefine Paul and Luther and Calvin would be to say this, that it perhaps can be faulted of the reformers that they jumped from the phrase works of the law, putting their emphasis on the works part, and then making a general theological doctrine out of that, perhaps they acted faster without understanding what people are bringing to us of first century Judaism. But I would also say this, that in pointing to works of the law as simply a boundary marker, as simply a covenantal marker of who they were, they are forgetting one very important thing that Paul is bringing out, I believe, in that central clause of verse 16. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And that forgetting is that they have forgotten that Paul is speaking to people. The big 25-cent word is anthropology, the science, the understanding of man. And I believe that they have forgotten that Paul is addressing people who are sinners by nature, without hope and without God in this world, whether they be a Jew without Christ or a Gentile without Christ. And the examples that I could come up with, uh, to me, it was the whole week as I meditated on it, it's like, yeah, this is my understanding, but it's also my experience that within the heart and the conscience of man, many and most people, I believe, are asking, how can I be right with God? That's the issue. And I can remember reading about missionaries who went into third world countries where they have never heard of Christ. And they somehow the, the hearer gets the, the picture of the cross. And they believe that they've imparted the gospel of, of faith in Christ alone. And, and then the person, the villager, will, will take that cross or he'll go out in the woods and he'll take sticks and he'll carve and make his, himself his own wooden cross. And he will come into his hut and he will place that cross next to all of his household idols. I never knew about this God, Jesus. I'm sure that it can hurt. And I will add Jesus to my pantheon of faith. And I will tell me, tell me how to worship him. Tell me what I need to do. It is said that in the Sio language tribes of Papua New Guinea, that when missionaries came and first presented the gospel of faith in Christ, that one of the tribesmen jumped up and screamed, No, it is by the law. And to bring an example from first century Judaism, Riken uh, came across this epitaph on a first century tombstone for a Jewish woman. Here lies Regina. She will live again 
return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and the pious that in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you, this your chaste life, this your love for your people, this your observance of the law, your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you. For all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. There are those who say Judaism is not a religion of legalism. And it may not be on the outside, but there are people in it who are. And if you listen to the words that I read, sadly, on any given day in any given town in the United States, at any given funeral, there are pastors saying these very kinds of words. Surely because of their chaste life, surely because of their devotion as a husband or as a wife, or a devoted brother or sister, or their love for people, or their attendance at church, or, 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 surely they deserve to be justified. Paul is saying, you may be a Jew, you may be a Gentile by birth, but we are all sinners, and the only way we are saved is not by keeping works of the law, whether it be a boundary marker that tells me who I am racially, or works that I work, whether they're in the Bible or not, they may be words, works that I make up myself. Either way, no man can be justified by works. There is a polarity, doing the Torah and Christ's faith. No man can fulfill the law. He is a lawbreaker. He is subject to the penalty of breaking the law. Paul tells us elsewhere the law is a detection device. That the law gives us knowledge of sin. It detects and convicts us of transgressions. It finds our sin out, but it is not capable of acquittal. The law is holy, but it does not create guilt. It is capable, however, of declaring us guilty. Faith is of a different principle altogether. It does not merit justification. It is the instrument of justification. Christ is the basis. Christ is the object always of faith. If our faith is in anything else, if my faith is in my performance of works, if my faith is in how I believe, it is not faith. It is not Christ's faith. It is not a complete acceptance of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. It does not take hold of Christ as Christ's faith does. Christ is the one who makes us right with God. And so Paul tells us 
He gives us that general theology 101. No man can be justified by the law. And then he gives us that personal experience. Peter, you know this. No man can be justified by works of the law. And now he brings to the fore a phrase that may not show up in, in the scriptures, uh, perhaps in your, your footnote. It references Psalm 143. But what is Paul doing? Paul is saying that this justification, this thing that we need to flesh out more, but this thing is biblical. In the Old Testament, it, it tells us, it, it's as if Paul says, no man is justified by works of the law because this is what the Bible actually says to us. He says, for in thy sight... In Psalm 143, David says, For in thy sight no man living is righteous. He, he, he's, in his prayer to God, he, he's, he's coming to that realization. He, he's come to that truth. He's got the theology 101. No man is righteous in God's sight. And the context of the psalm, if we were to read the phrase just above it, he pleads with God, and do not enter into judgment with thy servant. The context that Paul draws from is not boundary markers. It's not racial distinction. It is judgment. It is a man standing before holy God and saying, what must I do to be saved? How do I become right with you? And he comes to that realization in the sight of God, no man living is righteous. And Paul uses a play on words. He substitutes there the word flesh for man because he's thinking again of man in his sinful nature. All flesh is born dead in trespasses and sins. It's not table fellowship that is the issue before Paul, I think it is a much bigger issue. How are we accepted by God? And David says, do not enter into judgment with me. Instead, he says, justify me. How will my life be preserved? Is as if David asks. No man is righteous in your sight. How can man be preserved? And when we go down to verse 11 of Psalm 143, we see, In thy righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. If we were to paraphrase it in two words, it would be David crying to God, Justify me. And in Genesis 15, 6, we see further confirmation. We've studied this in Thursday night class. Get the audio, get the book, read Abraham, it says, then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The term, yes, can mean covenant love, but in the context, it is that justification. It is that, we, Chuck used the word Thursday night, a forensic term. It comes from the courtroom. It means declared innocent, cleared of all charges. It's not a declaration of what group you're in or what covenant you're in, it is a declaration or pronouncement of righteousness. And Chuck quoted Leupold who says this, uh, that tells us again the context is, is 
is of judgment. He says, perhaps the most marvelous thing about this word is the clearness with which it rules out all efforts and attainments of man as contributory factors in justification. By works of the law, no man is justified. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul uses that word for acquittal. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. See, it's in the context of judgment. It's in the context of, of pronouncement, of a judge passing that pronouncement. In Romans 4, we read these words, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Just as God reckons righteousness apart from works. Here's David, circumcised, kosher eating, Sabbath keeping, law abiding Jew, who was righteous apart from from works, because his righteousness did not come from his works, but came from above. The logic of these verses 15 and 16, I believe, could be stated this way, in this form of syllogism. Premise one, if anybody could be justified the law, it would be natural-born Jews. God's chosen people. Premise two. It's impossible for Peter and Paul to be justified by works. And their apostles and their natural porn Jews. The conclusion. Therefore, it must be impossible for anybody to be justified by the law. But thanks be to God that conversely, all people, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, as Paul would say, can be pronounced just before God through faith in Christ. Justification, one's legal status before God, is finally, fully, forever secured by faith in Christ. Do not add any requirements to that. No one will be justified by any additional requirements that you or I or anyone else could add. For by works of the law, no flesh is justified, but by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are justified. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, please help us as we seek to wrap our brains and our hearts around these things. Father, cause us to have a heart not only to rejoice in these things, but to really understand them, to really know. Because these things are not from man. They are yours. These things have come to you, to us from you, you have given these things to us not out of man's desire to create a religion, but because you have desired that we would have fellowship and a relationship with you. So we ask, Father, that you would teach us, that you would grow us in these things. 
Help us to seek them out and to walk in them and to rejoice in them, yes, and to rejoice. We ask that you would do these things. Please, please build your church. Make it glorious to you. Make it wonderful. Make it something that you smile over. Something that is glorifying and honoring to you in all aspects. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. Jumping and without having all of the background for Paul's therefore, I just I couldn't help but move my eyes down from Romans 7 to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.